Welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, please open it up with me to the book of John. Yes. Always in a good mood on a Thursday. Always in a good mood. I get to see you all, and we get to open up the Word together. Um, So we are going to be picking up right where we left off last week in verse 14. And I'm going to summarize the text into four main uh, words Four main words, four main points, and uh, the the key doctrine in view tonight is the incarnation. Big word that just means Jesus becoming a human. That's what it means. Jesus becoming flesh, as verse 14 puts it. And the goal of my sermon tonight is that it would produce in our hearts thanksgiving. A heart of thanks. And we're going to talk about how Jesus came, he humbled himself to the point of of being a a servant. And some of you have heard that before. It's something that you are familiar with. And as we move through the text, I don't want you to be thinking, have I heard this before? I want you to be thinking, am I thankful for this? Yeah? Am I thankful for this? Not, oh, I've heard this before, check, check. Um, you know, because too often we, ha- we can check our theological boxes without ever wrestling with, does this move me to thanksgiving? Does the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as a man, does that move me to thanksgiving? That is what we're after tonight together. So if you're ready to jump into God's Word, say jump. jump. All right, and let's read John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For, or because, linking back to verse 14, because from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the first word that helps me think about the text tonight is the word humility. So if you like to take notes, uh, write down the word humility. And um, so how how I've phrased my points tonight is point number one is thankful for his humility. Verse 14 says that the word, and this is referring back to the verse one, in the beginning was the word, it's Jesus, right? The word Jesus became flesh. This tells us that Jesus became human. You see, the word flesh there 
is not a typical, is not the typical word. Normally to, to say someone is human, you'd use the Greek word anthropos, which is, it just means human. It's the most common way to refer to a human. But the, but the apostle John uses a totally different word. He uses the word sarx. It's a different Greek word. And sarx refers to the bones, the skin, the blood <laughs> of a human. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, Jesus actually became a man. He actually had a human body. This is what John is emphasizing here, that the eternal word from verse 1 took on human flesh and confined himself to a frame like ours. This is no uh, Halloween costume, right? Jesus didn't just dress up as a man. He became flesh. And he became flesh without ceasing to be God. So you have to have both, right? It wasn't that Jesus transitioned, he was God, and now he's a man. It's no, 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 no. Everyone say, no, no, no. It's that Jesus is God and took on flesh. There was a full union between both natures, right? His, his human nature and his divine nature. It's really important. It's called, uh, theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union. Um, but you don't have to know that term. Just know that it refers to God, that Christ had uh, in him was the union of two natures, divine and human. So, um, and I, I meant to bring this up, but Philippians 2, again, describes Jesus' humility taking the form of a servant, becoming flesh. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul is encouraging the Philippian church. He's saying, have this mind among you. which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of his servant and being born in the likeness of men. Again, that means he became flesh. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's where we get the word humility here. And that's what I want to bring out. Note the humility of God. Now, humility is not, oh, I suck, I suck, I'm just the worst. That's not humility, all right? Humility is others are important to God. Not I'm, I suck, I'm the worst. Others around me are God's image bearers. And they, they're, they're of worth, they matter. And humility isn't thinking of, what do people think of me? It's, it's thinking about how to serve them. And Jesus' humility is, is demonstrated by this action that he became flesh. He became flesh. And we will see from our study in the, in the coming weeks that Jesus' attitude, it wasn't, woe is me, this is so hard. Um, it was a cheerful acceptance of, of, the, of the mission that God had given him. Right? What humility. Jesus emptied himself, came as a man, came in flesh. What a stunning example of Jesus' humility. Are you thankful for that? Thankful for his humility. But Jesus not only took on flesh, but he moved into proximity with us. That's my second word, proximity. And we find that right, out, right, right in verse 14, where it says, The word became flesh and what? Say it to me. Wait, what was that? 
dwelt among us. Has anybody had their coffee yet? Come on, I've given you much, many hours to have your coffee by now. The Word became flesh and? Yes, He dwelt among us. God descends uh, in flesh to live among us. And what's so interesting about this is where Jesus decides to take up residence and how He does. You see, Jesus didn't move into Beverly Hills or Door County, Wisconsin, or or the, the, where the top 1% live, right? He didn't get a real estate agent, or, you know, I need a hot tub. I mean, a baptismal tank, you know, in my house. I need a, you know, I, I need a good prayer closet because I pray a lot at night. You know, he, he didn't put a lot of time into that. He, uh, Matthew 8.20 says that Jesus actually had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't actually have a home. It says in in this verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. (laughs) Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Christ lived among his children. He was more concerned about calling them home than his own home where he lived. Now this word dwelt literally means to pitch his tent, or to tabernacle among his people. And now this should allow us, or this should help us remember Israel, that God dwelt in, in the tabernacle before the temple was built. And in Exodus 25, God commands Israel to make a sanctuary for himself so that he can dwell with his people. It's called the tabernacle. But John here has picked up this idea, and he's saying, The word Jesus has become flesh and his tabernacling among us. He's saying that God has now chosen to dwell among his people in a more personal way than even back then. He has come in flesh. He has come to walk among his people. This is a better, this is is better than the tabernacle, John is saying. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And I just want us to note the intimacy God desires with his children. Intimacy. So much that he has moved into our neighborhood. He's dwelt among us. He's he's moved into the neighborhood. He desires to be in community with us. It's so amazing. You know, the, the companionship of Jesus is so much better than whatever companionship you could be longing for. The closeness, the proximity of Christ to you, so much more important than any friend, any desire for friendship, so much more fulfilling. And here is Christ coming down, coming near to us. And James 4.8 says that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Christ now dwells in our hearts through faith. We have proximity to Christ because of his incarnation. Are you thankful for that, Christian? Are you thankful for his, that he did not stay in the country? He didn't buy a house in the country where he could be away from the commoners. But he went right to the center of Jerusalem. He ate with the tax collectors. He conversed with the sinners. He talked to the religious leaders. He lived among us. I am thankful for his proximity. And it's because of his proximity 
that enables us to see his glory. That's what it says here in the next part of the verse. And that's my next word. I'm thankful for his glory. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we have seen his glory. I love that. It's eyewitness language. Have you ever witnessed something amazing? Uh, When I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time, Zion National Park, anybody ever been to Zion? Two different things, but they're both awesome. Anybody ever been to Zion? Okay, there's like three people. Go there. I couldn't stop saying, I stood on the edge and looked down. I saw with my eyes the chasm. I couldn't jump. I, know I have a huge vertical, but I couldn't, I couldn't clear it. <laughs> Megan, don't, don't fact check me on that wherever you are. Uh, I, I saw it. I, 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 I sensed it. I smelled the dust in Zion National Park. That's all eyewitness language. And John is giving us that language. He's saying, I, we saw the glory of God. And, and he also does the same thing. He opens the book of 1 John the same way. He says, um, from the beginning, I should just pull it up. He says, we have that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest. And we have seen it. This is 1 John 1. And we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. You see, when Christ dwelt with his people, he manifested his glory. His glory. You see, when you spend a lot of time with someone in proximity, you get to know them. This is true in friendships as well. Um, I, uh, anybody ever been on a road trip with a friend and you ended up not being friends after? In kind of a... <laughs> You were, you were friends. You were just like, dude, I'm tired, man. That joke, you've said it three times. <laughs> so I, I went on a road trip um, with a buddy named Chris. We were driving home from college in 2015. Good friends, but man, we were so tired of being in the car together, uh, proximity. Uh, but we got to know each other really well, you know? And that's the same thing, same idea here. Jesus' proximity enables us to see and to know him better. And... Um, so, so we've seen his glory. Now, what is glory? So I, I want to spend some time on this because it is a word that we throw around, but do we know what it means? And I'm confident that many of us do, but allow me to do a little uh, recap, review. So glory is another word for God's character. Simple as that. Um, and uh, so Psalm 19.1 says, the, glo- uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that when I look at the sky that they're saying, there is a God and he is of of infinite worth. Have you seen his character? They're yelling. They have a big PA speaker. Each cloud is like, there's a God. (laughs) The heavens declare the glory of God. And then in Exodus 33, 18, Moses actually asked to see God's glory. And I, I want to actually turn there. So if, you have, if, you are, uh, if your fingers are spry, why don't you turn over to Exodus 33 with me? And if not, you can just listen along. And so Moses has the audacity to ask the living God, Yahweh, In verse 20 of chapter 33 of Exodus, 
Verse 18, please show me your glory, he says to the living God. Please show me your glory. And, and he said, and God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face and live. And we'll come back to that, but in verse 18 of John, John repeats that. No one has ever seen God. Because Moses cannot see God and live. Continuing, verse 21, But the Lord said, There is a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Awesome. (laughs) And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. (laughs) Oh, And I'm going to keep going in a second. We're going to look at chapter 34. But Moses asked to see God's glory, and he's only allowed to see his back. God's like, all right, hide you in this rock, and then I'm going to put my hand over you, and then I'm only going to allow you to see me when I'm like already past. Because no one can see God and live. So even even Moses doesn't get to see God. But anyway, okay, so I'm, I'm still on this point. What is glory? So what do you think God shows Moses? Moses just asked, show me your glory. What does God show him? Chapter 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose up early in the morning. Anybody get up early this morning? (laughs) And he rose up early and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but but who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, and on their children's children, and to the third generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. (laughs) What else would you do? And so what we see here is that God's glory is his character. It's his character traits. It's the beauty and the majesty of God. It's it's amazing. So flip back to John chapter 1. And I want to now link it to verse 18 because John says, we're going we're to come back to verse 15 through 17, but John says, no one has seen God, the only God. Sorry, I read the only God. The only God there is referring to Christ. So it says, no one who's ever seen God, verse 18, the only God, which meaning Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay, this is just mind-boggling. So creation sings of God's glory, right? The heavens declare. Moses saw the afterglow of of God's glory, but in Christ we get the main course. In Christ, Christ, Jesus has brought us God's glory in IMAX theater. That's what it's saying here. (laughs) And and why why is Christ able to do that? It's right in the verse. Because he is at the Father's side. Look at verse 18. 
Don't, Jesus is at the Father's side. It, it literally means in the bosom of the Father. And that is a place of intimacy. It's a place of mutual love. It's a place of, of knowledge. He knows his Father. And so it enables Jesus to make known the glory of God in a clearer way than has ever been made known in the history of the world before this time. We have seen his glory. We've got to be thankful, y'all. <laughs> we have received a privilege that Moses was not given. <laughs> we have seen God's glory in a clearer way. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 reiterates this. It says, In the past, God has spoken in many times and in many ways, but in the last days, in these last days, he has spoken through his Son. Oh, I'm thankful for God's glory manifested in his son, Jesus Christ. Thankful for his glory. Yes, so we're going to move on to verse 15 now. And um, so I just covered verse 14. Um, so I want to go back to verse 15. We're not going to really cover it. Paul's going to do a character study on, on John next week, but I just want to give you what verse 15 means real quick, and then we'll jump back in. So it says, John bore witness about Christ and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's almost like this interjection. Like, hey, by the way, let me slip this in. And, and I, let me just give you this. Um, we live in a culture that prizes youth and, and, um, and newness. But back then, they lived in a culture that prized age and precedence. Which means that if I came before you, if I started in music before you, even though you wrote a better song, I'd be greater. <laughs> or if you were, you were born first and you were a teacher, and I was born after and I was pretty good, but you were born first, you had preeminence. But here is John making clear <laughs> that Jesus, though he was, though he was younger, that he was of greater worth, that he was a greater teacher. And he just didn't want the audience to be confused. And we're going to get more into that. I'm excited for the character study that Paul's going to do uh, next week on the John the Baptist. So that's verse 15. But then, so John, John says, Jesus is greater, and it's from his fullness that we receive grace. And that's my fourth word. Thankful for his grace now, verse, um, verse 16 is linked to verse 14. So I just want to read it through and kind of skip over verse 15 so that you get the flow of the text. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory more than Moses saw. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because, verse 16, or 4, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And I was going to bring a whiteboard up here, and now I'm mad that I didn't. But just imagine that I write grace here, and then I write grace on top of it. And that's really the idea here, is grace is stacked upon grace, or, or in place of grace. And, um, you know, most of the time... Um, most of the time, we, we think of grace as the goodness of God. It's true. Um, but grace is the disposition of God 
that makes him delight in giving sinners what they don't deserve. That's what grace is. It's his heart that makes him happy to extend to sinners what they don't deserve. And so John is saying that through Christ, all those who are born of God are recipients of God's generosity, that grace upon grace. And so what is this grace upon grace? We find it. What's this grace stacked upon grace? And we find it in verse 17. Grace, part one, (laughs) is the law. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is the first installment of God's grace? It's the law. For the law was given through Moses. Now most of the time, we don't think of the law as a, as a happy thing, as an as a act of grace, right? We don't think of it as an act of generosity. No, the, the law and the Old Testament, that's, a, that's the product of an angry God. And the New Testament is a God of love. False. Everyone say, eh. That's wrong. That's false. Jesus is saying that the law was the number one installment of God's grace. Because we've received grace upon grace. And number one, he's saying in verse 17, for the law came through Moses. That's the first installment of God's grace. Well, how could that be? Like, how could David say that in Psalm 119, oh God, how I love your law. How could that be a good thing? Well, I'll tell you. Um, One of the great uh, French theologian, John Calvin, um, describes the law as God's kindness. And he does it in, in three ways. So he tells us that the law is useful in three ways. So you ready for him? How is the law a, an act of grace? Well, number one, it's a mirror. Write this down. Actually, this is really helpful. So if you're ever wondering, like, why does the law exist? What the, what's the, law, the purpose of the law? I'm just going to give it to you. Three purposes right here. This is for free. Number one, it's a mirror. The law exists to reflect back to us the glory and the perfection of God and to help us to see how imperfect we are, to help us see how sinful we are, right? That's how, that how, that's how a mirror works. I get up in the morning, and my hair is just like in my face, and I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, get that out of the way, you know, I gotta brush my teeth, you know, a mirror helps us see reality, right? It doesn't really matter if we you know, I think my beard looks good. Once I look in the mirror, then I'll actually find out if I have a hair like sticking out anywhere. The mirror sh- reveals, and that's what the law does for the Christian and for the non-believer. It reveals our lack. How God's standard is up here and we have failed to meet it. And you're like, how's that a grace? Well, for the Christian, it's, it's just eroding our self-trust. That's a good thing, right? It's eroding our self-confidence because the more confidence in God, the more faith you have, the more joy you're gonna have in life. And the more confidence in the flesh, the more misery you're gonna have because who are you trusting in? A frail, broken sinner. So the first use of the law is a mirror. The The second one is a restraint on evil. You see, the law cannot change the heart but it can curb evil through threat of punishment. That's how the law works in the U.S. The law is in place to curb evil. 
And the same is true of, of the law of God. In fact, a lot of our laws in this country have been, have been patterned after uh, the Ten Commandments. Increasingly, we're going the other way, but that was the foundation of our country. Um, it, was a, it was built on, on, on Christian principles. I'm not going to say that it was a Christian nation. Now I'm going off into a different tangent. Get back, Luke. <laughs> and the last use of the law, so right, it was a mirror, it was a restraint on evil, and it was a guide. It's a guide. The law, the law is a grace, it's a kindness of God because it's used to guide the Christian into the good works that God has planned for him or her. The law shows us what the will of God is. Oh man, I wonder what pl- is pleasing to God. I'm sitting at work. I have to do some paperwork. What, what's pleasing to God in this moment? Oh, work heartily as under the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance, right? That's the law of God. That's, that's leading you. That's a guide to show you the will of God and to, to lead you in the good works that God has planned for you. So the, the law is grace. The law is an act of God's grace to give it to us. So that's, that's the first installment of grace that John means here. The grace upon grace that we received. He actually means the law that came through Moses. But part two, the grace in place of grace is is the incarnation. Because it says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Once again, the highest and clearest expression of grace was found when God sent his son to earth. This was the grace upon grace. His perfect obedience, his death, his life, his resurrection, the power of his resurrection. The true light could not be overcome. That's what the verse five of John says. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, this is, this is making clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the, fu- he's the fulfillment of the prophecies He's the fulfillment of the patterns, the traditions of the old tabernacle and temple. He's the greater. And the application here is, are you thankful for his grace? Are you thankful for his grace? Do you know how many other prophets and and leaders of the Bible longed for this? Longed to see this? Longed to see the grace upon grace? um, Peter says in chapter 1 of his his epistle, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully. He's talking about the prophets that didn't get to see Jesus becoming flesh. They inquired what person or a time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That's you and I. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And the point is here that the prophets (laughs) longed to know what was coming. Longed to know the fulfillment. Because the law was just a shadow. The law was just scaffolding. It It was just part of building up 
to what would be revealed in verse 14, when the word would become flesh. Moses just saw the back. But we see the fullness. We see the clearest picture of Christ. Are you thankful for the incarnation? Thankful. Be thankful for his grace. Don't miss the opportunity to think about the great blessings that flow to you through the incarnation of Christ. Let's pray. God, we have seen your character. We have seen your glory. And we've been recipients of your grace. Lord, we are, as a 20s ministry, are thankful for your coming. Thankful for your, your 